You only have one chance to make a good first impression. And since you guys are all right here right now listening to my second ever hosted podcast, you're counting on me to be like spaghetti with marinara sauce in the fridge. Always better the second time around. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host, Hode Rubino, publisher of devilsdigest.com. It's been a few weeks since we last talked, and we will certainly cover some of the events that took place in that time period. We'll be talking a good deal about spring practice, which, believe it or not, is only two and a half weeks away, and we'll explain what the reasoning was behind this very early date, and also discuss the various storylines of those 15 ASU practices. And yes, believe it or not, there'll be more to talk about than just a highly anticipated quarterback battle. In this podcast, we'll also talk about some basketball, and it's definitely been a roller coaster of a January for this Sun Devil team. But does uh, the last weekend sweep against the Oregon schools perhaps change that narrative moving forward? What does this team have to do in rest of conference play? to make it back-to-back appearances in the NCAA tournament. As always, the last segment of our podcast will be dedicated to answering your questions on anything Sun Devil Sports related, and you sent a great deal of questions this time around, so I'll make sure to answer each and every one of them in this podcast. Okay, guys, let's get this podcast rolling. So how do you fancy spring practice in February? Maybe you're like me and want to reserve your answer slash judgment until after ASU's 15 practices have concluded. But if nothing else, just wanted to provide some of the reasons why ASU decided to begin spring practice earlier than it ever has. And it's not just because Tempe has the weather that is certainly conducive for such a move. From a training perspective, the staff felt that it was good to have an uninterrupted spring strength and conditioning session that in years past and that is definitely not unique only to Arizona State, has been broken up by spring practice. Obviously, you can't train as rigorously as you would when you have a football practice the next day or or two days later. So uh, this really allows a consistent flow, if you will, of a strength and conditioning program that doesn't have to be hindered, for lack of a better term, just because there is a football practice uh, to uh, take place later on in the week. So now uh, the team can have a long uh, session that's dedicated to, to a vital component of their offseason preparation, which in th- theory really should help a lot of players achieve their goals in the strength and conditioning department much sooner than in years past, therefore becoming better conditioned when uh, full camp uh, rolls by. I know for a fact that head coach of sports performance for the football team, Joe Connolly, absolutely endorses this new schedule, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had some input on this early spring uh, date as well. No one takes comfort in all those close losses that the team did endure in in the 2018 season, but make no mistake about it, that if you didn't have a well-conditioned squad to begin with, it would be quite impossible to hang uh, with your opponents in the fourth quarter. And the fact that ASU was able to do that several times last year, and again, I'm not calling any of those losses moral victories or anything uh, of the like, 
this shows that the strength conditioning program at the school is certainly headed in the right direction. And if you're giving this department all the necessary tools and needs to elevate that important aspect of the football team, then by all means, you should do that. Now, on a somewhat related note, if one of the players suffered a lengthy uh, injury during the spring practice, now the rehab starts a good two months earlier than it would, would in years past, increasing the chances, and again, obviously this depends on the type of injury and the severity of it that you're going to have, that you will actually be ready for the start of full camp in the first week of August. If you notice the schedule, spring practices uh, starting the second week of February, they'll have three consecutive Friday and Saturday night sessions. Now, aside from the fact that those sessions are being very fan-friendly and giving folks a chance to check out the team during spring practice on multiple occasions, it also provides an opportunity to host high school coaches and recruits in the 2020 and 2021 classes. And ASU does that without needing to compete with other Pac-12 teams that will be conducting their spring practices after ASU already ended theirs. So having those recruits as a captive audience and, again, not needing to compete with your conference foes for their time on the weekends, uh, it really uh, is something that can help pay dividends, at least for some recruits, uh, in, in upcoming weeks, especially recruits that may not leave, live close by in California or the Four Corners, but rather coming from uh, one, two time zones away. And uh, this way, again, they don't have to divide your time between I'm sorry, divide their time between the Tempe campus and maybe another campus that they want to check uh, in the region. Um, every time Herm Edwards has been interviewed about the February schedule practice, he talks about the three freshman quarterbacks that are already here on campus that he wants to get on the field and at least have some kind of picking order following spring practice and, and going into fall camp. Now, I'm not saying that this specific aspect is one that justifies a February start, but I can sort of see the logic of having those three young signal callers not standing around, so to speak, for a couple of months after arriving on campus and not throwing the ball around during that period. And maybe just taking that anxiousness factor, if you will, out of the equation, as all three of them are going to be hitting the ground running, trying to carve their own niche on the team about one month after their arrival on campus. So this brings us uh, to a discussion on the various storylines that we can look forward to in spring practice. And understandably, we're going to start with the most anticipated position battle of them all, the quarterback competition. Now, I definitely heard all the talk, honestly, not only from fans, but also from people within the football staff, believing that the starting quarterback in 2019 will indeed be one of the three freshmen that was signed in this recruiting class. But I'd like to start the discussion with the lone returning scholarship quarterback on this team, Dylan Sterling Cole, the Richard Jr. Uh, as you may recall, uh, in, in 2016, the, the uh, intent was to redshirt Sterling Cole as uh, Manny Wilkins was a starting quarterback. Brady White was the backup. Uh, and when both of them were simultaneously uh, injured uh, during that campaign, uh, Dylan Sterling Cole was uh, thrown into action uh, late in a game against uh, UCLA. Uh, throwing an interception in his uh, first ever uh, pass attempt. And uh, the week later, he actually had his uh, only uh, start as a Sun Devil playing at Oregon. Had a bag of mixed results uh, game, but uh, in a close loss, I thought that he represented himself uh, very well, again, for being a true freshman uh, quarterback that certainly did not expect to play that year. In 2017, uh, he redshirted 
just because the plan was retro retro in 2016, that obviously did not take place. So the staff went ahead and gave him that uh, Richard year in the hopes that he would develop into a better uh, quarterback, both physically and mentally. That really never took place. And uh, there were uh, some rumblings about him even possibly uh, not being on the team coming into the 2018 season. But uh, he did uh, stick around. Now, because of those uh, aforementioned close games that Arizona State has been engaged in, really on a weekly basis during last season, Sterling Cole uh, really did not get a chance to play all that much that year. And uh, if you read the interview I did with uh, offensive coordinator Rob Likens, uh, he talks about that he possibly regretting that he didn't put Sterling Cole in there on some obvious uh, rushing uh, quarterback plays that not that many Wilkins could not execute them, but when you talk about just a sheer physical talent that's able to plow through on oncoming linebackers and whatnot, that Sterling Cole was definitely more equipped to do that. But uh, here we are in uh, 2019, where, again, Sterling Cole is the only quarterback on the roster with some kind of experience. And, again, whether you're a member of the football staff, not all, obviously, but some, or just a fan, you don't think that Sterling Cole is really up to the task and you're expecting him to not really concede because I don't think he was uh, the shoe-in to be the starting quarterback anyway, but maybe yielding to one of the three freshman quarterback that only arrived on campus less than three weeks ago. And having one of those guys be be the starter is something that a lot of us are, are assuming. So, uh, Again, that's where I want to start the discussion in, in, in terms of the quarterback competition and tell you that from my sources, I'm getting the vibe that Dylan Sterling Cole in 2019 is more prepared than he ever was to be the starting quarterback for the Sun Devils. Will it happen for sure? I am definitely not comfortable saying that even before spring practice started, but just in terms of is this something that is a plausible theory or just absolutely ludicrous in nature? Um, I think that it may be tend trending more towards the plausible than, than the impossible that Sterling Cole, even with the three freshman quarterback that were signed in this class and all the hoopla around them, that he just might uh, win the position for Arizona state. So, I don't think anybody should be shocked if that happened. Now, moving on to the three quarterbacks that are signed, I feel that there might be two quarterbacks that probably have a better chance than the third one to notch that uh, starting job in 2019. So let's go over uh, those names. Uh, first uh, is uh, Jaden Daniels, who in the latest uh, Rivals.com rankings uh, leaped into the uh, top 100 uh, players in the nation, top 75 really to be exact, and he's at number 57 right now. Actually, it's a, it's a final ranking, so uh, that that's going to be his standing for the 2019 season, uh, now ranked as the uh, number two dual quarterback in the nation, ironically 
behind only Spencer Rattler uh, locally here from uh, Phoenix uh, Pinnacle High School and, and who, who signed with Oklahoma. So Jenny Daniels is portrayed as a dual threat quarterback. And when I talked to AC offensive coordinator Rob Likens, I talked to his high school coach Nick Rogers, they feel that uh, that is a moniker that is unfair for Jaden Daniels because, yes, he's athletic and uh, has done very well uh, running the ball, just creating plays with his feet. But he is a prolific passer. And if you just if you look up his uh, stats, uh, they're absolutely eye popping video game stats. So this is uh, one quarterback that is definitely very, very comfortable throwing the ball and we shouldn't think of him as uh, someone who is really going to run the ball 10, 12 times a game. I don't think that uh, he wants to do that anyway. I don't think it will be expected from him in Arizona State to do that. But nonetheless, I tend to feel that Arizona State would prefer to have a quarterback who is very, very mobile. And really, when you look around the Pac-12, I think it would be somewhat hard-pressed to find a successful quarterback that doesn't have that trait as as one of his strengths. Uh, so that's why this battle, more than anything, may be between Jaden Daniels and Sterling Cole because they both possess uh, that mobility to uh, run the ball and, and run the ball well. And even though a lot of folks are asking, what kind of offense is Arizona State going to run when they don't know who the starting quarterback is? And obviously, each quarterback does have their own unique skill set. I would say that even though we're sitting here, right here on January 20th, not knowing what scheme we're actually going to see when spring practices begin the first uh, week of February, that I believe the coaches are going to prefer a, a, a mobile quarterback that will resemble, to some extent, a, a Manny Wilkins, but also somebody that may be more prolific in actually throwing from the po- throwing from the pocket, going through progressions, and I think Manny Wilkins made some strides in that in 2018. Don't get me wrong, but I think the coaches would like to see that aspect being elevated, and they feel that that aspect along with the ability to run the ball very well and again make plays out of the pocket which i think wilkins actually did not do a good job of is something that should at the end of the day win the starting job for whichever quarterback is named for the sun devils so a lot of people are asking me who i feel the front runner in this race is going to be and for that reason, reasons I just described right now, I think it might be just a two-man race between Jaden Daniels and, 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 and Dylan Sterling Cole. But out of the three freshmen, I definitely give Jaden Daniels the biggest chance of winning the starting job for Arizona State. The second freshman quarterback I'm going to mention is Joey Yellen. And when I talk to Rob Likens and other sources on what Yellen can bring to the table. He's a player that's definitely mature beyond his years. He definitely has a great understanding of the game as a whole. Now, how much understanding he has of the ASU scheme obviously remains to be seen, but 
based on the body of work that he's shown in that specific department, I don't feel there should be any reason why Joe Yellen could not pick up the Arizona State offense quicker than you may expect the typical freshman to comprehend it. And he definitely can be a major factor in this quarterback battle. Now, compared to the other two quarterbacks I mentioned, Dilling Sterling Cole and Jaden Daniels, Joe Yellen is definitely more of a pocket quarterback. That goes without saying. It would be harsh to say that Joe Yellen cannot operate out of the, outside the pocket. It would be harsh to say that he cannot get two, three yards with his feet if he needed to. But that is something that is definitely not in his wheelhouse compared to the other two quarterbacks I mentioned. In my opinion, not to say that it puts him behind the eight ball, but that could be one disadvantage that he may have. When I talk to Rob Likens, it definitely sounds like he wants to run the zone read. He wants to run the, the read the run-pass option. And when you look at just pure skill set, and again, every quarterback is going to have their strengths and weaknesses. There's no perfect quarterback out there, not in Arizona State, not in any other team out there. But I feel that Joe Yellen, unless he can prove everyone wrong, which maybe even categorized as a big surprise at this point that he could operate with his feet as well as the other quarterbacks on this roster. I don't know if that may just hurt his chances of winning the starting job. When you have such a prolific running back in Eno Benjamin, who likely may play his last year for the Sun Devils in, in 2019, if he puts up the same numbers he put up, in 2018, I think it is important to have a quarterback that can run the run-pass option, that can operate well with his own read when you have such a threat in your backfield and such an amazing ball carrier as of, as Eno Benjamin. And I feel that if it's going to be Joe Yellen behind center, defenses will not really expect that from ASU. They will not really respect ASU to successfully run the zone read or schemes like that. And that's something that uh, could definitely be detrimental for ASU's offensive success and at the same time detrimental to Joey Yellen's chances. I definitely don't put him as an outlier in this quarterback battle. I wouldn't be shocked if he won the job, but Again, I feel that among his fellow freshmen, I would definitely give the advantage to, to Jaden Daniels and would not be surprised if even Sterling Cole ended up being just a notch higher on the depth chart than, than Joe Yellen, whether it's the end of spring practice or the end of full camp going into the 2019 season. So uh, a lot of people may see this as a battle, between Jaden Daniels and Joe Yellen, I agree Joe Yellen is battling Jaden Daniels, but also battling uh, Dilling Sterling Cole, in my opinion. And again, 
if pressed for an answer, and I know I'll be getting a lot of questions, both online and offline, who I think the starting quarterback is going to be or how I rate the chances for each of the signal callers, I would uh, put Joe Yellen just a little behind the two front runners for the job. Freshman quarterbacks, Ethan Long seems to be the forgotten man and somebody that a lot of fans, maybe some beat writers like myself, are not giving him too much of a chance to beat out both Jaden Daniels and Joey Yellen, or even one of them, to better his position on, on the depth chart. In terms of skill set, I think that he may be somewhat of a combination between Jaden Daniels having that dynamic component of his game and Joey Yellen in terms of leadership and understanding the game. Uh, but I know, I know when I talked to Rob Likens, he compared him to a Team Tebow, but just a better thrower than Team Tebow was. So uh, if any ASU fans out there are getting a little nervous, uh, don't worry. It's not a apples-to-apples apples comparison by, by any means. But Rob Likens talked about Long's uh, leadership and passion for the game. And because he was injured several games during his senior year, we really weren't able to see his mobility that much, but he definitely does have that component uh, in, in his game. So I don't know if Ethan Long may be a serious contender this year position. Uh, he's clearly the dark horse, if you will, but, Sometimes when you use that term, you're talking about someone who actually has somewhat of a realistic chance to win a position battle or or any other competition for that matter. I have a hard time believing that Ethan Long can beat all three quarterbacks, Dylan Sterling Cole, Jaden Daniels, and Joe Yellen for the starting job. I have a hard time believing that he could be even the number two quarterback on this team. But then again, a lot of folks are comparing this to uh, the position battle we saw in 2012 between Michael Eubank, Mike Berkovici, and Taylor Kelly, and really putting Ethan Long in the Taylor Kelly category, where finishing third in spring practice didn't mean anything back in 2012 because he won the job in full camp. I can see the parallels, definitely, but I don't know if I'm ready to make that proclamation that despite all odds, if you will, that Ethan Long will be the starting quarterback. So he might be at a little bit of a disadvantage in this quarterback competition, but, uh, We'll see what transpires in those 15 practices and how much can Ethan Long do with the reps that, that, that he's given. And that's another question, too. Do I think that the first three quarterbacks may get more reps with the ones and the twos than Ethan Long? I could see that happening. 
it's going to be hard to perhaps name a clear-cut starter at the end of spring practice, but I'm sure the coaches, and they never would come out and say it out loud, have their own opinions on who do they think is in a better position to win the starting job. And if that's the case, those other individuals that are going to get more reps with the ones and the twos compared to other quarterbacks on the roster. So it's a matter of if Ethan Long is stuck, quote-unquote, uh, having reps with a lot of second and third teamers, does he really make the most out of it? Does he really give the coaching staff a lot to think about? Uh, that's something that definitely that definitely remains to be seen. But again, if I'm just taking a snapshot of this quarterback battle, uh, I feel that Ethan Long is probably at a disadvantage, at least as it stands right now. But that's going to be the fun part of spring practice. We'll see how all those uh, four quarterbacks fare. And 2012, when we saw a astonishing development in Taylor Keller winning starting job, that was only seven years ago. So it'll be interesting to see if history uh, repeats itself. And if it does, Ethan Long uh, will be the starter. So definitely be interesting uh, to track that. As I mentioned earlier, there are some other topics, believe it or not, to talk about spring practice that does not have to do with the quarterback battle. And I do want to shift for a few moments to the other side of the ball, to the defense. The news uh, over the weekend came through that uh, Jamar Kane, who ironically was coaching the last team ASU faced in the 2018 season at Fresno State, uh, will assume the defensive line coach position at Arizona State, replacing uh, Sean Nua, who departed for the University of Michigan. Uh, Jamar Cain uh, is someone that is coming very highly regarded. Uh, he knows both uh, offensive line coach Dave Christensen and defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez, and I have no doubt on my mind that both of them have uh, vetted Cain uh, uh, in the interview process and uh, definitely gave Herm Edwards quite a bit positive feedback on his abilities. When you look at his resume, he, he only only been with Fresno State for two years, and the first year of his arrival, the Bulldogs were a struggling rushing defense ranked 123rd in the nation, giving up 247 yards on average. In his first year, he elevated that unit to number 11 in the country, giving up less than half the yards that they gave up the previous year, 113 yards on average. And Fresno State, as we all know, uh, for the last couple of years, uh, has definitely been one of the best teams in the Mountain West and ASU fans uh, definitely got to see them up close and personal in, in the Las Vegas Bowl, a game that was close to, was close in the first half and probably should have been won by Arizona State in the third quarter. But uh, their defensive line uh, was uh, definitely impressive 
in in that game. Uh, yes, that was a game that you know you know Benjamin did uh, rush uh, for over 100 yards. He did get the uh, single season uh, record, but uh, I felt that especially in the um, in the second half, uh, that was, that was a defensive line that uh, really gave. Arizona State uh, quite a bit of fits. They posted uh, six tackles for loss, so I think it probably helped in Herm Edwards' decision process to get to see how Jamar Kane coached that defensive line up close and personal, and that uh, something that definitely influenced his decision making as well. I think the defensive line is probably the most uh, crucial component right now of this ASU defense because we look at linebacker and defensive back you have a lot of returning proven starters at those two units and those are two position groups I definitely expect to see quite a bit improvement from last year linebackers and the secondary but when it comes to the defensive line Granted, you only lost one key player and outgoing senior, Rennell Wren, at nose tackle. But even the returning talent, I'm not really sure what to make out of it in in terms of can they elevate this program to the, to the next level. The best returning player might be sophomore-to-be, Jermaine Lole. And he's a player that missed the first couple games for disciplinary reasons. And then the first few weeks after that, didn't get all that many snaps. And later on in the year, end up being, surprise, surprise, another true freshman starting for this ASU defense. And he played very well. So it'll be crucial to see his development from freshman to sophomore because he might have to carry uh, this defensive line uh, by and large. You have other players returning like Shannon Foreman, George Lee, Jalen Bates, all of them have started multiple games in 2018. But you can't sit here and say that any of them had a above average or much above average performance last year. So to have a defensive line coach that has the ability to coach up this unit is definitely crucial. And obviously, ASU believed that Jamar Kane is the best man for this job. And I'm not here to imply that if Sean Nua did stay another year at Arizona State, they wouldn't be up to the task. But again, I think the, the hire of Kane is a vote of confidence to really be able to elevate a unit that really needs to take the next step. Because when you look at defending the run, I don't think Arizona State particularly did a good job about that. Uh, yes, their sack numbers were up. I don't know if you can really attribute that much to to the defensive line, and same thing would go for, for tackles for loss as well. So this defensive line is going to have to elevate their performance from last year probably more than the linebackers in the secondary. And if they can do that, uh, then this defense, who made tremendous strides under first-year defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez, 
can really take that next step and really be a defensive powerhouse in 2019. But a lot of it's going to depend on the defensive line. I think uh, Jamar Kane uh, is definitely fortunate to get a uh, rivals 250 four-star defensive end player in uh, Stefan Wright. Uh, Wright is definitely an incoming freshman who I absolutely expect to hit the hit the ground running. And one of the more intriguing uh, players in the 2019 class is defensive end Amiri Johnson. I think that someone like Jamar Kane probably coached more Amiri Johnson's than Stefan Wright's in his career, if that makes sense. So I am pretty confident that somebody like Kane can really just squeeze every ounce of potential that a player like Amiri Johnson has. And really just a lot of other players uh, on the uh, ASU roster that seldom played, like a, like a DJ Davidson. I really thought that he was going to be a nose tackle that was going to regularly back up Rennell Wren, maybe even challenge him to some extent. That never took place. And maybe having a new coach right now with the Sun Devils can just create a resurgence by a player like D.G. Davidson. So that is uh, definitely one under-the-radar storyline uh, to follow. But again, uh, I think overall it was uh, definitely a good hire for uh, for Arizona State. And again, uh, just don't be surprised if this uh, defensive line is able to take the next step under Jamar Kane. And if that does, that uh, is definitely something that can have a very positive trickle effect for the rest of the ASU defense. So let's go back to the other side of the ball, to the Arizona State offense, and specifically at running back. Another coaching hire that took place since our last podcast was the running backs coach hiring of Sean Aguano, the very successful head coach of local Chandler High School, won multiple championships in his tenure with the Wolves. Aguano is replacing John Simon, who is joining former Arizona State offensive coordinator and now head coach at Memphis, Mike Norvell. And no doubt Aguano is uh, inheriting right off the bat a great running back in Eno Benjamin, who had an absolute outstanding year for the Sun Devils last year. And there's definitely a lot of reason for optimism concerning the Arizona State offense, even though it's a unit that lost wide receiver Nikhil Harry, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Lost its starting quarterback for the last three years, Manny Wilkins, but when you look at Eno Benjamin, he's uh, definitely one reason for optimism and probably no bigger reason than that one factor right there. But it is important for Arizona State to develop a capable number two running back. And that's something that I asked Rob Likens in my interview with him. And he agreed wholeheartedly that as great of a luxury it is 
to have a player like Eno Benjamin, you need to make sure that there's adequate depth behind him. Eno Benjamin, game in and game out, averages easily over 25 carries. But now the question is, is that something that needs to continue from here on out? Or is it imperative that you give him more rest during games, assuming, obviously, that your production is not going to drop? And Arizona State, I feel, is on a definite mission to achieve that. And the question is, who is going to be that number two running back to step up? And can they really prove to the coaching staff that when they are there in the backfield spelling, you know, Benjamin, that the offense can still run whatever it needs to run? And whether that running back is asked to get four or five yards or asked to be a more than adequate pass blocker is asked to be a more than adequate receiver out of the backfield. Can they perform all those duties? Right now, I don't think we're going to see much of Eno Benjamin in spring practice in terms of getting multiple, multiple reps during the scrimmages that we're going to see over the 15 practices. And Rob Likens, justifiably so, said that there's really no reason to wear down Eno Benjamin between the tackles. We know already what he can do. And you definitely want to pace the workload that you're putting on him again because Benjamin has been an absolute workhorse on this offense. Yes, he has great results to show for it individually and also results for the entire offense that benefited from the pretty high number of carries he had each game. But now it comes a time where you want to get a competent number two running back that can shoulder some of the load and also really be a credible threat for opposing defenses, knowing that they're not going to get a break from Arizona State's running game just because, you know, Benjamin is not the player behind the quarterback lined up. So when you look at the cast of characters that will be competing for that role, you definitely have to start uh, with Isaiah Floyd, the junior college uh, transfer, who's going to be a junior in uh, 2019. And I know sometimes there's uh, too much talk being placed about his height being closer to closer to five seven, but whether it's fall camp or some snaps here and there during the year, he definitely showed some flashes. And I know it's easy just to look at his measurables and think that he just can be a change of pace running back, somebody who absolutely have to find place for him off the edge and in open space to really utilize his full skill set, not expecting him to run between tackles and get positive yards. But it'll be interesting to see if 
with all that being said, can he actually be the number two running back? Can he actually get a good seven, eight snaps, maybe even ten a game? That's that's going to be something interesting uh, to follow. Another player is uh, A.G. Carter, who was a freshman uh, last year, uh, did redshirt uh, by playing less than four games. Uh, I've heard mixed feedback on him, whether he's really ready to take the mantle and take that step forward after his freshman year. So I don't know if he's going to be someone who has a good chance of winning that number two job. But in spring practice, I'm sure he'll just give it his all and see uh, if that's enough to beat Isaiah Floyd and the other uh, players at this position. Probably the most intriguing player of this group would be Demetrius Flowers, who as some of you, maybe all of you recall, did actually sign in the 2018 class. And because uh, he came, I'm sorry, he had, he had to overcome a uh, serious injury he suffered in his senior year, uh, he was asked to uh, gray shirt, which he did, which means that his enrollment got delayed by six months or so. So instead of arriving here in summer of 2018, He's here on campus now, enrolled in spring of 2019, and will be a true freshman this year. He is definitely a more physical back out of the bunch, maybe even more physical than, than Anino Benjamin. And when we talk about change of pace, uh, sometimes we might talk about running backs that are more identical to the stature of an Isaiah Floyd rather than a Demetrius Flowers, but I feel that the physicality of a Flowers can be its own interesting change of pace for this ASU running game. And it will be interesting to see if all the rust that Flowers definitely has to knock off if not being in the so-called football shape is something that manifests itself in spring practice, those are all questions that, depending on how they're answered, can also determine how much of a chance Flowers has to notch that backup position behind you know, Benjamin. I, I, for one, would not be surprised that out of all the players I just mentioned, that Flowers would actually be that player to get the next snap at running back when Eno Benjamin is off the field. So that is uh, another storyline that I understand won't be as sexy as a quarterback competition. No storyline in spring practice will be. But I think it's important to really identify that running back in spring practice because just as the reps of the backups are going to decrease in the beginning of fall, of fall camp, that's 
also when you want to establish yourself as someone that's not going to fall under that category of you you are slotted to be a third or fourth teamer that is simply not going to get many chances to showcase your skills in full cab, especially with one or two weeks gone by. Because as we know, roughly two weeks before the season kicks off, you already have a two deep, whether it's published on the official site or not, doesn't really matter. But when you go to practices, you just see the same lineup time and time again, so you already can formulate your own too deep at every position. And sure, a strong spring practice can help you do that, but even if you have a strong February, still kind of weird to say February instead of March, April, but if you have a strong February, then come August, you can really put yourself in position to really get, to really get those extra reps. So that's something that uh, somebody like Flowers and the rest of the players are going to strive to get. And again, I won't be surprised if Flowers will be that guy for Arizona State. When you look at the wide receiver position, it's all about life after Nikhil Harry. And the bowl game against Fresno State didn't provide such a great outlook from here on out. But if we're being honest about this, I don't know if that game and the way the wide receiver group in specific performed in, in that contest should really be any kind of indication of what we can expect in 2019. But Nonetheless, when we are discussing uh, storylines, that is uh, definitely one of the more significant narratives that's going to take place during spring practice. There's a lot of returning talent at this wide receiver group. You have Kyle Williams, whose production definitely dropped in 2018, and in my, in my conversation with Rob Likens, we talked about some of the reasons for that. And Likens said that he had to really examine all the film from last year. But playing slot sometimes in this offense, and we even saw it under Mike Norvell six, seven years ago, is not uh, always a high-production role among the wide receivers, especially uh, when Arizona State was a run-heavy team at times. That was the wide receiver role that required definitely more pass block, more run blocking, I'm sorry, than uh, running routes out there in the open. You also have just the natural fact that Nikhil Harry sucks a lot of receptions from other wide receivers, for lack of a better term. And Kyle Williams, for one reason or another, may have been hurt by that fact on a larger scale compared to his teammates. 
you also have players like Frank Darby, Brandon Ayuk, both have uh, started games last season. Uh, Frank Darby more, more than Brandon Ayuk. You have uh, John Humphrey, who may be the forgotten man uh, in this group, but uh, suffered a serious injury in uh, 2018 and uh, is by all counts, ready to go, uh, even with the earlier spring practice. And I'm very curious to see how he will fare battling uh, with his teammates. You have uh, a very intriguing young wide receiver who uh, played less than four games uh, last year to preserve his redshirt, uh, Jordan Porter. And in terms of having a threat downfield. Uh, he's uh, somebody that I'm very anxious to see how he fills that role. Um, can he challenge Frank Darby to be that threat down the field for, for Arizona State? Uh, that's, uh, that's definitely one aspect that uh, did not work all that well for the Arizona State offense uh, with Manny Wilkins. I felt that Wilkins definitely had consistency issues delivering the ball down the field to Frank Darby. Frank Darby was the main main wide receiver, but obviously some others were involved too, to a lesser extent. And now um, the starting uh, quarterback, whomever that may be, uh, is going to have some weapons at his, at his disposal in players like Darby and Porter. Now the question is, can he deliver both figuratively and literally to get uh, those big chunk plays for the offense that, again, were absent a good deal last year? So who's going to be the wide receiver that's really going to take the mantle and be that go-to guy in the passing game. Much like the starting quarterback question, it's one that I've been asked a lot, both on and offline. And I know some of you are coming to this podcast wanting to get predictions. And I think that Brandon Ayuk can and will be that player. I'm not expecting the same level of production. I'm certainly not expecting the high degree of difficulty receptions. Uh, Nikhil Harry was very, very unique in that area. Just in 2018 alone, he had some just ridiculous catches made. But in terms of having that dependable playmaker, I really feel that Brandon Ayuk, who is entering his senior year in 2019, will be that player. And it will definitely be important for him, just like Nikhil Harry was, to be so proficient in his skills and garner enough attention to open up other opportunities for his teammates. So I, for one, will be shocked if Brandon Ayuk at the end of spring practice doesn't emerge as the best wide receiver on the team. And would be even more shocked if he's not a starter 
for the Sun Devils when they uh, open up the uh, 2019 season. But much like running back, it's also a question of how are the wide receivers, perhaps not named Brandon Ayuk, are going to step up. And not that Nikhil Harry has been a curse for this group by any means. He contributed greatly for the offense, contributed to special teams quite a bit too for that matter. But sometimes when you have that overwhelming figure of any position group, it's hard for even talented players to really shine, to really show their skill set. And now without Harry, it's definitely a more even playing field, not only in terms of competition for the different roles of this unit, but also as far as players to really shine and really prove to themselves and to the coaches that they can be dependable playmakers, that they can be players who can be productive on, on a fairly on a fairly consistent basis and really enhance the Arizona State offense as a whole. So those, uh, in my opinion, are the uh, main storylines that uh, are going to occupy Arizona State's spring practice. And just as a programming note, uh, we're going to try to record a podcast after each week of spring practices. They might be a little shorter in scale, but nonetheless, we're going to talk about our observations that we've seen from all the practices that week and really circle back to the questions we're raising today as to are we seeing what we expected prior to spring practice actually materialize itself during spring practice itself. But sometimes you don't get a straight answer. Sometimes you don't get an immediate answer. But nonetheless, uh, you need to have some kind of resolution for all those questions. And uh, we will see, again, if some of the players that have just been waiting for their time to prove themselves, maybe even surprise others, does that time really come in, in, in spring practice? Do they really take full advantage of that opportunity that's presented to them? Mama Mavis, oh mama, they try my patience. Is gone. Who is left to save us? We mourn. I'm praying for my neighbors. They say the devil's at work and is calling favors. You say I'm dangerous. I speak for the nameless. I fly with the vultures. I be with. Let's shift gears and talk about ASU basketball. Six games into Pac-12 play, the Sun Devils are four and two. 13 and 5 overall. Not a horrible record by any means, although it's fair to say that the team probably should have one or two more wins under its belt. Last time we had this podcast, we talked about the great win against Kansas, definitely the marquee victory of this program uh, by far. But uh, since that game, it's uh, definitely been a lot of 
travels to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain, if you will. Uh, two uh, consecutive losses to Princeton to finish non-conference portion of the schedule, and then the uh, Pac-12 opener against Utah. Back-to-back -back wins against Colorado and California, definitely two of the weaker teams in the Pac-12. That probably didn't give you a whole lot of indication have the Sun Devils turn the corner or not. And if anybody was somewhat optimistic about those two wins, well, then came an absolute uh, embarrassment, no other word to portray this, loss at Stanford, 85-71, to a game where ASU was absolutely absent in the second half. And this uh, past weekend, the Sun Devils found itself with a crucial home series with the Oregon schools. And there's no doubt in my mind that even if the ASU, ASU did split those two games, that they might have sunken so low into a hole that they simply could not dig themselves out of eventually. So here comes a game against Oregon State, who at the time was undefeated in Pac-12 play. And a game that I felt that really was going to test Arizona State uh, quite a bit with their deliberate pace on offense. Pretty good defensive team uh, to boot to. And this contest really showed the best and the worst of uh, Arizona State. ASU was able to lead by as many as 17, 18 points to begin the second half and still ended up squeaking out just a three-point victory, 70-67. to 67. The game actually ended on an air ball three-point uh, attempt shot by the Beavers. So you're definitely happy with the win if you're an Arizona State fan, but you're just wondering, okay, can this team really put it all together and even attempt to be a force to reckon with in the Pac-12. So here comes the game against Oregon. And uh, Oregon was the hands-down favorite, perhaps, to win the Pac-12 during the preseason. They definitely had some uh, key injuries along the way. A situation where the Ducks were dependent on a lot of true freshmen to have an immediate impact right out of the gate, and that did not happen, or this didn't happen as quickly as some expected it to. But a team that did have some momentum on, on its side, uh, some of you perhaps saw the win they had against UCLA in overtime the other week. Uh, they were down, I believe, was it about 10 points with one minute to go and still were able to send the game to overtime and win it then. And then uh, they went down uh, to Tucson before they faced Arizona State and uh, beat the Wildcats in a knuckle-dragger of a game over there. So really, last Saturday, we saw two teams in terms of level of confidence that were quite different from each other. And Arizona State, let's face it, was probably the team that was feeling less confidence about their chances in that uh, contest. 
And the game uh, against the Ducks was tied, as we all know, at halftime. And then Arizona State uh, fell behind early, 54-50, early in the second half, that is. And then went on one of the most impressive runs I've ever seen any Sun Devil team go on a 22-2 run against the Ducks that sealed the game and gave him the uh, 78-64 victory. So now when you look at this game, uh, you wonder, okay, what did go well for the Sun Devils in these last two games to seemingly get over the hump, be in the upper echelon in the Pac-12, be a squad that basketball experts are going to take seriously now as much as they did when they beat Kansas or even beat Mississippi State much earlier in the season. Uh, one issue I look at is the lineup, and I know that Bobby Hurley uh, had to be a mad scientist, if you will, at times, trying different lineups, seeing whatever could work for this team, and that really uh, is an unenviable task for any coach uh, to endure. And I think more or less, once he was able to settle on a lineup when they face both Oregon State and Oregon, that you see players just growing into their roles. Uh, a player like uh, Tayshawn Cherry providing three-point shooting off the bench, providing great defense off the bench, has definitely been huge. Uh Kimani Lawrence really uh, finding his role, which is right now more of a reserve player. And they're able to complement the stars of this team and uh, Zylan Cheatham, Lugans Dort, Rob Edwards. And it seems like things are starting to come together for Arizona State because of that one aspect of really knowing what your role is on the team? What is your contribution on the squad? What is expected from you night in and night out? And once you can get that determination, I feel that players grow more comfortable with what, what's expected from them. The coaches know what task they can reasonably expect their players to execute and and things do do start uh, falling together or coming together I should say I think another thing is uh, the ball movement and having your guards namely Remy Martin but to some extent Lugens Dort really get everybody involved really have a high number of assists out there and and it's not that a guy like Remy Martin isn't capable of doing it but just really hasn't been doing it on a consistent basis and we're starting to see maybe instead of the light flickering for Remy Martin when it comes to that specific factor, probably being more now on the on position with, you would hope, no intentions of going off or going south ever again. And Remy Martin is definitely a capable shooter on this team. I know his form is one of the ugliest 
you'll probably see from any basketball player, but he's not somebody that shoots at a horrible percentage or um, or anything of that of that sort. I mean, I, I feel that there's, I mean, he definitely had some struggles, just like any player on the team, but uh, I do feel that by and large, he does get his shot to go down at a higher clip than probably some players on the team. So, but that aside, the fact that he's able to really distribute the ball better now than he has just a couple weeks ago, definitely has been a huge factor for Arizona state. And even against Dort, who's really growing into that point guard position and Murray Martin was injured. He really had to carry that mantle more often than he probably expected to when the season started, I think is having a, is actually doing a better job in that area for the Sun Devils. But really um, the straw that stirs the drink is uh, senior forward Zylan Cheatham. And he has been playing the point forward position uh, maybe much more than even the coaches expected this year, but has been doing fairly well. In that area, and just as the emotional leader on and off the court for the Sun Devils is really proving his worth time and time again, uh, you know you, you you can point to the monster dunk that he had against Oregon, a dunk that I'm sure that everybody listening to this podcast probably watched at least twenty, thirty times already since the game ended, but. More importantly, is this his 13 second-half points against Oregon. Uh, the fact that his play really elevates everybody around him, that really that really has been huge. And uh, again, we talk about ball moving, you talk about having a high number of assists. Uh, Zalin Cheatham is definitely a player that, that you look to in that area. And I think more often than not, he really has delivered. I know one aspect that we talked often with Arizona State basketball is the coaching and the counter moves, whether it's in game or halftime adjustments and how Arizona state is able to execute those. I think to some extent fans are being a little too harsh on Bobby Hurley and his staff, because I feel that the so-called chess matches are being won Maybe not as consistently as you'd like him to, but let's face it: if your record in mid-January is, is 13 and five, and you're playing in a high major conference, and you're playing a challenging non-conference schedule, you're obviously doing a lot more things right than you are wrong. You're only as good as your last game, and consistency obviously is paramount when it comes to scheming against an opponent. Again, not only just in the days leading up to the contest, but also within the contest. And I felt that Arizona State, when you look at the game against Oregon State, I mean, granted that game was way too close for comfort, but the fact that Arizona State at times absolutely dominated a team that, was, again, undefeated then in conference play, was figured to be 
one of the better teams in the Pac-12. Some even said the best at the time. I think showed that this coaching staff is very capable in strategizing against its opponent. Against Oregon, uh, I think the proof is definitely in the pudding, the way they played um, in the in the second half, and and also the fact that they didn't let Oregon get back into the game. I mean, 20-2 to two run, that is video game numbers, if you will. And the Arizona State coaching staff knew that it's one thing to allow a team like Oregon State back in and come close to winning, but if you do that to a team like Oregon, who is more talented than their in-state rivals, then that's a game that could very well end in the lost column. And I think that ASU did a great job in making sure there was a no, there was no repeat performance of that, and they really stepped on the opponent's throat and made sure that the game was within reach after getting up so big. So now the question is, what do the Sun Devils need to do the rest of the way to not be dependent on the Pac-12 tournament, a venue that has not been kind for ASU in a long, long, long time to qualify for the NCAA tournament? It seems that the consensus magic number is finishing 12 and 6 in Pac 12 play, which means that Arizona State can only afford four losses from here on out against its uh, Pac 12 foes. The problem with that, in my opinion, is that Arizona State, and I mentioned this many times before, is not a team that plays very well at all on the road. When you look at the true road games for the Sun Devils, uh, they eked out a, a win against Georgia, 76-74, and this is definitely not a Georgia team that's a toast of the SEC. Um, absolutely got demolished at Vanderbilt a couple days later, 81-65. Uh, uh, and then um, you look uh, on the road, uh, the game we mentioned a couple minutes ago, at Stanford again, a game that ASU absolutely got annihilated 85 to 71. And the problem is that when you look at the rest of the schedule, uh, even just coming up uh, this week, you have uh, two games at UCLA and at USC. Two, ga two games that I think Arizona State can win, but again, with their performances on the road, you definitely have your doubts. And what really becomes tricky, I think, for Arizona State is that their last three games of the regular season are at Oregon, at Oregon State, at Arizona. And if you're a team that's already shown that you're not playing well on the road, it's only reasonable to assume that you're probably not going to have some kind of miraculous turnaround over the next few weeks in how you play away from from Tempe. So now the question is, can you make sure you protect home court as much as you can and make sure that you never get swept on the road and you just split those games? And even if you do, now the 
for losses that you can probably afford still leave you with a pretty slim margin of error. And by the way, there's no guarantee that you're going to win all your games at home either. I mean, the best team in the Pac-12 right now may be Washington. I mean, yes, you're hosting them, but that's not a game that's a gimme by any means. Playing playing your arch-rival Arizona, I think Arizona has proven to be better than uh, people expected. I think it's definitely benefiting from a very down year by the Pac-12 because Arizona, in terms of talent level, doesn't resemble anything that a Sean Miller team has produced in the last three, four years. But again, that's, that's another game that would be very, very challenging at home. So there are definitely some, I don't know if opportunities is the right word, but definitely some contests that Arizona State could falter. And it really does need to make sure that the level of play is indeed consistent and that the coaching adjustments are consistent as well. Because all these dips, all these ups and downs really create doubts, really create the fool's gold effect, if you will. And Arizona State really has to guard itself from that. So I think uh, when you look at the schedule, just, just for the rest of January, that can tell us a lot. Is this going to be just middle of a pack team in the conference? Or is this a team that can really distinguish itself, create some separation with some other teams, and really be in that top four level of the Pac-12? And the remaining games, again, in the month of January are uh, this Thursday, January 24th at UCLA, two days later at USC, and on the last day of the month, Thursday, January 31st, hosting Arizona. If ASU wins two of those three games, I think you can re reasonably have a good outlook for the rest of the regular season for Arizona State. And you can say that they definitely have a chance to finish in that top four of the Pac-12. And the reason I keep on mentioning the top four is that those are the four teams that get the first round by of the Pac-12 tournament. In other words, don't have to play on Wednesday, just play on Thursday. And if they win the Thursday game and the Friday game, they're in the Pac-12 championship game on Saturday. So that's where Arizona State wants to find itself in that top four. So you're playing less games in a tournament and again in a venue that really hasn't been kind to you at all so having that uh, first round by and playing a team that just played the night before on paper could be beneficial for Arizona State so crucial uh, three game stretch over here to finish the month for Arizona State and really show the fan base at large that's feeling very good right now after sweeping the Oregon schools and beating a very good Oregon team the way they did to prove to those fans that this indeed is a team that has been able to get over the hump and is ready to visit those peaks much more often than enduring those valleys.
As we do with every podcast, we do dedicate the last segment to answering your questions, which were posted uh, both on our Twitter page and in the premium message board of DevilsDigest.com, The Devil's Huddle. And if you're not a subscriber, I definitely encourage you to join us there today because information that I give you here on the podcast is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the quality and quantity of uh, information that I do provide my customers on a daily basis. So definitely would love to see you uh, be not only a podcast listener, but also a customer of Devil's Digest. So just uh, go to devilsdigest.com and sign up uh, over there to be a subscriber. So um, I'm going to take care of my customers first and uh, answer the questions that uh, were posted at the Devil's Huddle. The first question comes from Lobo Jangles. What's the latest with ASU forward Mickey Mitchell? Uh, would it be real tough for him to find minutes? Uh, could be a medical redshirt. Might find some minutes with Cheatham and Lake leaving. Uh, in terms of uh, Mickey Mitchell, uh, as uh, some of you may know, uh, he was having back back issues pretty much for the entire preseason uh, did play in a couple games really earlier this year, but uh, we haven't seen him since I know the coaches were trying not to rush him and may have felt that they've done exactly that when uh, he did play sparse minutes earlier in the year. And uh, since then they uh, basically, taking their time to make sure he's 100% healthy. I really think his future is really murky just because uh, these back issues uh, don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Uh, A medical retirement, I would say, is probably more in the cards than a medical redshirt. The uh, redshirt um, rules uh, in basketball are, are pretty convoluted. I would have to really look into that and see if it would be possible for Mitchell, assuming obviously he's healthy enough to play next year, to really benefit uh, from, from that redshirt and uh, be able to take advantage of it. Uh, as you know, Mickey Mitchell transferred here from Ohio State, so I don't know if the uh, the transfer year that he had to sit out uh, would also factor in in any future eligibility due to medical reasons. Uh, but that's something we, we can look into. But again... I just feel that with his uh, current physical condition, a medical retirement isn't imminent, but definitely a scenario that, at least for me personally, wouldn't be surprising at all. The next question comes from another DevilsDigest.com customer, Caterade101. And uh, three questions over here. First one is, will the uh, Shanaguano hire as running backs coach uh, lead to more retention of local four and five stars. That's definitely the plan. Obviously, when somebody like Sean Aguano got hired by Arizona State, that was definitely one of the benefits that was seen with his hire. I'd like to think that ASU would be more successful uh, with uh, somebody like Aguano doing doing the local recruiting. But let's face it, uh, even under Todd Graham, when ASU was winning back-to-back years uh, 10 games 
a lot of the high caliber recruits in state still opted to uh, leave Arizona. So I don't know if the increase in retention is going to be something dramatic just because of the higher Sean Aguano, but I think it puts ASU maybe in a better position than it was before just because of Aguano's uh, reputation as such a great local high school coach. So you can expect improvement, but dramatic improvement, at least right here, right now, I'm a little skeptical of that. Uh, will the departure of uh, John Simon impact high-caliber uh, running back recruits? I don't believe it really should because, as we mentioned earlier, and not that it's any secret, but uh, Eno Benjamin is uh, definitely expected to declare for the NFL draft in 2020. This is obviously assuming that he puts up similar numbers to the ones he did in 2018. And that fact, uh, by and in itself, should really attract a running back that's that's a that's a four star that's ranked very high among his peers uh, to come to a school like Arizona State, which definitely showed the commitment to run the ball and showing that the running backs that are part of the team could put up very massive numbers, which would help them uh, get drafted one day by the NFL. So I don't think John Simon leaving or Sean Aguino coming. Uh, really changes that dynamic. I think it's more the Eno Benjamin factor, if you will, that will help attract higher caliber uh, running back recruits program. Because again, when they see what Eno Benjamin was able to do as a football player and maybe get uh, drafted higher uh, than uh, some may expected, those are the uh, receipts, if you will that uh, can really help ASU's case in being a track, an attractive uh, destination to the, uh, to, to the high-caliber running backs out there. Uh, the last question from Raid 101 is, uh, any offensive alignment transfers you can hint at? Um, that's uh, an example of the type of information that I really would reserve for, for, for my customers in the huddle. Um, I will say right now that I'm not aware of any concrete names that um, you can look at them at viable recruits. But if and when I do know those names, I will be sure to share them in huddle uh, with my customers just to provide them uh, the recruiting news value that I do uh, give to them uh, on a daily basis. Next question comes to the original Sun Devil for Life. What game are you already circling on your calendar this upcoming year and why? Um, that's, that's a good question. I really haven't given it uh, too much thought uh, with uh, kickoff being... Uh, it, eight months away, but um, I would say probably the Oregon game because uh, Oregon had a massive uh, recruiting class uh, in, in, in 2019, still could add some pieces, I guess, in the February signing day, and Arizona State is, is getting is getting them at home. I think it's going to be one of the more attractive uh, games uh, played in, in Sun Devil Stadium in 2019. And I think it's uh, somewhat of a litmus test because uh, some uh, think that Oregon may be ready to uh, overtake uh, Washington's uh, reign as a toast of the Pac-12 North. And uh, a win against Oregon could definitely be uh, quite the statement um, by the Sun Devils, a team that um, I really expect some to pick uh, maybe not as low as he did uh, this uh, pass uh, uh, preseason media poll, but uh, 
Definitely not, definitely not a contender in the division. I, I feel that uh, the departures of Manny Wilkins and Nikhil Harry are going to weigh heavily on those uh, that are making those predictions. So uh, for Arizona State uh, to beat a team like Oregon in 2019, uh, I think would be just uh, one more example like they've shown uh, this past season that they can definitely defy the, the gloom and doom prediction. So, uh, yeah, I would say uh, the, ga- the game against Oregon uh, is a game that I uh, look forward to as um, a, a, litmus, a litmus test and a game that would be very, very important on the Arizona State schedule. The next question comes from another Devil's Digest customer, West Valley Devil. Is there any truth to the idea that ASU is grooming defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez as a future head coach of the program? I did not read the press statement in the forum. After it was announced, it was brought to assistant head coach. It was discussed a lot. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that um, this is something that has been talked at the highest levels of, of, of the athletic administration. I don't. I know that Herm Edwards wasn't brought in here to coach five, seven years, even though I think uh, <clears throat> mentally and physically he's definitely up to that task. But um, I think uh, a trend that you see in the NFL, and after all, Arizona, Arizona State is trying to model the uh, structure of an NFL team, is that when you have a uh, very uh, competent play caller, uh, whether it's an offensive or defensive coordinator, and in Arizona State's case, obviously, on the defensive side, you want to make sure that you make uh, that individual a head coach so uh, he has no incentive to leave for another head coaching job at, a, at, a, at another program. And uh, Danny Gonzalez uh, obviously has uh, deep ties uh, to Mexico. New Mexico has deep ties to, to San Diego State, and those are two programs that I know fans have expressed concern that might be courting uh, Danny Gonzalez uh, pretty hard and maybe luring him away. <clears throat> but um, Danny Gonzalez has said on a couple occasions that uh, he's really here in the he's really here for the long haul at Arizona State. He's not uh, somebody who uh, enjoys or even does hop from job to job every every two three years. And um, I know a lot of coaches uh, do say that, but I just happen to believe at least Danny Gonzalez in this case that uh, he wants to stay here for the long term. Um, but I also think that he knows himself that that probably does entail being uh, the next head coach after Herm Edwards uh, whenever that whenever that takes place. So, uh, yes, I would say there's uh, definitely some talks, obviously, in a very preliminary stage uh, concerning Danny Gonzalez uh, being the head coach to, to replace Herm Edwards. I think it's uh, one scenario that should not surprise anybody at all. If that were to happen, it's probably a question of uh, when, when and not if. At least in my eyes, I think of the job that Gonzalez has done with the Arizona State defense, turning it around in statistical car- every statistical category from uh, 2017 to 18 really uh, speaks for itself. And I think that uh, Arizona State would definitely uh, be uh, it would behoove the Sun Devils, I should say, to uh, really make sure that they secure Danny Gonzalez uh, for the long term, if that means being the next head coach at Arizona State, then uh, they should definitely go in that direction. And last question for the huddle comes from uh, Santan Devil. Hose hot take. Who wins the quarterback battle this offseason? Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier in, in our first segment, I think uh, this battle might be narrowed down to uh, the only 
returning scholarship player at this position, Dylan Sterling Cole, and uh, true freshman Jaden Daniels. Um, as I mentioned, I really think that having a dynamic uh, quarterback that's able to execute the zone read, that's able to execute the, the run-pass option, is uh, something that Arizona State would want to preserve uh, from, from last year. And those are the two quarterbacks, in my opinion, that are most capable of executing that type of style of offense. So the the battle is really going to come between them. But I have a feeling that Santan Devil and uh, some others out there are probably pressing me to uh, name one player instead of uh, just uh, saying who the final two are going to be. I would say that the vibe that I got from some very high sources in the program is that with Sterling Cole, there may be given less benefit of the doubt, if that makes sense, compared to Jaden Daniels. And I'm not saying the position is Jaden Daniels to lose, but I just feel that maybe in some way, and I know this is going to sound a little weird, but but maybe Sterling Cole, even as a returning player, might have a higher burden of proof than Jaden Daniels, and maybe the coaching staff would be more apt to roll the dice with a true freshman quarterback if they did not feel 100% comfortable with Dylan Sterling Cole or didn't think that he could eventually figure out whatever he needs to remedy to be the starting quarterback at Arizona State. So, again, I, I feel that those are going to be the last two-man standing in the competition uh, for, for the starting job. But I have a feeling that Jaden Daniels just might get the nod because, again, last year I heard those high play sources telling me that they truly believe that the next starter at quarterback for Arizona State is not on campus yet. They said that, obviously, months and months before signing day before the spring semester started. And that, to me, is somewhat of an indication that there may not be that high of a trust level in Dylan Sterling Cole. Uh, this all can obviously change on a dime during during spring practice, but if the race is even very tight between those two players, I just have a feeling that Jaden Daniels just might get the benefit of the doubt and be named the starter for the Sun Devils in 2019. Moving to the questions that we got uh, from Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ASU underscore rivals from uh, Jedi ASU. I keep seeing posts about how 2020 may be a huge dip in talent in the roster. Why and what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's not so much a huge uh, dip in talent as it is uh, not having a large number of upperclassmen. So if you look at the uh, number of sophomores and juniors on, on the AAC roster right now, you have 11 sophomores and 13 juniors. So by my math, that makes it uh, 24 players that would be juniors and seniors in, uh, in 2020. That's a really low number. And again, there's no exact science to this, but Usually the programs that do have a much higher number of juniors and seniors on the team 
are the ones that are also more successful because every coach will tell you that there's no substitute for experience and there's not going to be a whole lot of it in the uh, 2020 season for Arizona State. And by the way, when I mention the uh, 24 uh, juniors and seniors to be in 2020, that's assuming that nobody leaves the program. And, it, and I can definitely see some attrition uh, taking place even from those ranks. So uh, that's going to be a season that uh, Arizona State's going to have to, quote-unquote, survive because uh, it's going to be quite hard to uh, not have a lot of junior seniors on the team uh, really carry the rest of the team with them, and uh, you're really forced to hit a lot of bullseyes and probably a larger number than usual on your 2019 and 2020 recruiting classes because you're definitely going to need uh, quite a few players from those ranks uh, to hit the ground running and have uh, immediate impact. Uh, shifting to basketball, Jedi ACU ask, um, the win against Oregon was amazing. Love the new energy and even the joying. Uh, we did have a, an article by Jordan K. You should check it out on our front page uh, about how the trash talking and the intense uh, practices where there's a lot of uh, uh, joying back and forth between players has really helped. But yet I ask, um, is it sustainable? Uh, the new energy, the joying, and just all the uh, great performance that we saw from Arizona State in that sweep against Oregon schools, especially against uh, Oregon. I think to some extent it could be sustainable. I don't think it's out of the question that ASU can have some kind of measure of consistency. We talked early in the podcast about the fact that this is a program that struggles on the road. So when you talk about sustaining momentum, you're obviously not playing all of the games from here on out at home, and you're going to have to prove that you can play just as well on the road. And uh, the burden of proof is on Arizona State to show to themselves, let alone the basketball world out there and their fans, that they can be uh, – be just as impressive on the road as they are in uh, Tempe at the bank. So I think there's a chance for it to be sustainable. And I think that the next uh, three games, as we mentioned, a crucial stretch over here uh, at UCLA, at USC, and home against Arizona can really show us if this team is just going to continue to have of the roller coaster year that they've been having so far, or can it really further establish itself as it is right now in the uh, upper echelon of the Pac-12? So I think the jury is out, but I don't think it's out of the question that uh, Arizona State basketball uh, can show some kind of measure of, of consistency, and maybe they just took enough lumps up until this point to know exactly from a coach's perspective, from a player's perspective, what the do's and don'ts are in order for them to sustain any kind of measure of success. Next question on Twitter comes from Rosendo Mendez. Any big recruits or transfers that we're looking to add the next month? Uh, this is the type of information that uh, I really reserve uh, for, for my customers uh, in the huddle in terms of talking uh, specifics and uh, names, uh, viability, and just how the recruiting process is progressing. I'll just put out the, the two names that are already out there that are, uh, are public knowledge, if you will, 
that uh, ASU fans should keep an eye on. Uh, the first is a linebacker from Georgia, uh, Stephen Linton. He took an official visit to Tempe all the way back in June and uh, has kept in close contact with Arizona State. Uh, I feel that Arizona State is uh, sitting in a really good place uh, with him. And one player that uh, we should not be surprised uh, if he does uh, join the ranks here in Tempe. Uh, another player is a uh, former USC uh, running back commit, Jordan Wilmore from uh, Lawndale, California, south of L.A., he uh, actually decommitted uh, from USC l last week. Uh, Utah, UCLA are two uh, programs already took a visit to, and looks like the last visit before the February signing day will take place with Arizona State. So I think that is one uh, factor that can bode well um, for Arizona State. But uh, those are the two uh, known recruits out there. There are some other names uh, that we mentioned in our Devil's Huddle. So uh, just uh, one more incentive uh, for you to become a premium subscriber of devilsdigest.com. The next question comes from Doobie Scoo. I had to uh, make sure I'm reading, reading that uh, correctly. And uh, three questions, uh, each touching on the uh, big three sports at Arizona State. So first question was, what is it going to take to bring ASU baseball back to elite status it once was? Um, I think that Arizona State, State doesn't have issues in attracting good recruiting classes, but the question is, what happens to those players once they arrive to Tempe? Uh, we're seeing a lot of departures in recent ye recent years from the program, and uh, until you can have some kind of measure of consistency in retaining the players that you bring in and obviously develop them to uh, become much better than they were in high school, I don't know if uh, Arizona State could get back to that elite status that you are talking about. Uh, I've been critical in the past of uh, skipper Tracy Smith. I think that the program is definitely not heading in the right direction, and that's uh, pretty uh, pretty obvious to uh, anyone who does who does follow ASU baseball. Again, I don't think he has any issues recruiting quality talent to Arizona State, but I just feel that once the talent uh, gets here. It doesn't always stay. Uh, we hear about a lot of friction in the clubhouse, and we just don't see a lot of players really elevating themselves uh, that much from their freshman to, to their sophomore year, from their sophomore to their junior year. And again, that's assuming that they even stay with the program uh, that long. So to me, it's really about uh, player development. And uh, if Tracy Smith is not the coach from here on forward. Your recruiting classes might, in the short term, suffer because of that coaching change and just all the adjustments with the program. And that's where the player development becomes even more paramount. So uh, to me, really, it's uh, just more about uh, the coaching and what they can do to just better the program overall and, more importantly, just create a team culture that's really conducive to success because, again, I feel that that is something that definitely has eluded the program in the last uh, last two or three years, and it really is a shame for anybody that does want to see ASU baseball uh, go back and be at an elite status that we saw under Pat Murphy where making it to the College World Series in Omaha wasn't really um, something that 
was out of the ordinary. It's something that the program did, especially in the last half of Murphy's tenure, did it, if not every year, then, then every other year. So it might be hard uh, to get uh, to get back to that status, but uh, that's uh, really what's needed for the Sun Devils. Second question, this is a football one. Are we on track to make or win the Rose Bowl within two years? Well, as I mentioned just in uh, one of the first questions of this segment, I don't know if ASU is ready to do that in 2019 or 2020. I feel that it does not is not going to have, as I mentioned, a large number of upperclassmen, and there's only so much you can expect from the newcomers uh, to your program to contribute at such a significant level that you can turn this into a Rose Bowl team. Uh, I think it's a team that definitely could win the South Division because it was very weak in 2018. I don't see it getting a whole lot stronger in 2019 or 2020. But as far as winning the Pac-12 championship and qualifying for the Rose Bowl, let alone winning it, in my opinion, I think 2021 might be the first season you can reasonably expect that. Uh, and I know that the South, again, can be can be very weak, but uh, you're still contingent on beating the North champion, whenever that's going to be. And I think teams like Oregon, Washington, and Stanford have definitely positioned themselves better for long-term success than a lot of teams uh, in the South. So you definitely have to overcome that uh, to, to even make a Rose Bowl. But again, um, the uh, short explanation uh, for this long answer that I gave is that uh, I believe ASU could win the South in 2019 or 2020, but when you talk about actually qualifying to the Rose Bowl, let alone winning it, I don't see it happening before 2021. Again, just because of the uh, dynamics that are involving uh, the ASU roster and the amount or lack of experience that uh, it may that it will endure, I should say, in the next year or two. And last question: It's a, it's a basketball one. Can we please hire an assistant coach to teach our guys to shoot free throws? No other job, just free throws. Well, I know you're not being 100% serious about that question, but uh, obviously uh, no team out there can have more than three assistants, and Arizona State is no different. Uh, I know the free throws is something that they do practice and practice a lot of it, and uh, it doesn't always show up on a nightly basis uh, when Arizona State takes to the court. Uh, they were um, 8 of 20, I believe, in a win against uh, Oregon State, so uh, they won despite poor free-through shooting. Uh, the second half of the Oregon game, where they mounted, as I mentioned, that uh, great 22-2 to uh, run, they are actually 12-13 from the line. So, uh, you know, it's a team that uh, definitely shows the best and worst of times when it comes to uh, free-throw shooting. Uh, when you look at, look, look at the stat page, I think it's not um, unusual to see that some of the better shooters on the team in terms of jump shooters, not necessarily three-point shooters, but just jump shooters in general, are the ones that are leading uh, the team in free-throw shooting. Uh, Rob Edwards right now is shooting 89.3% from the line. Uh, Kimani Lawrence, uh, 75.9%. Remy Martin, 72.2%. So those are some of the better jump shooters on the team. And I think there's definitely a correlation between being a good jump shooter and being a good FIFO shooter. Uh, because then uh, you go down the list, uh, Lugens Dort only shooting 63.2%, and he's somebody that uh, definitely displays an inconsistent uh, jump shot. Uh, Zylan Cheatham 
is definitely a player that uh, makes his living more inside the paint than outside the paint, uh, shooting um, 53.7% from the field as a result of that. But he's shooting from the line only 62.7. So again, not unusual uh, to see a big man not have a good percentage. Um, same as we said about Romelo White shooting 61.5%. I'm not saying we should accept those percentages from guys like Dort, Cheatham, and Romelo White. But again, at the end of the day, I feel there is some correlation that if you're good, a good prolific jump shooter, you will shoot well from the free throw line. And when you're not, your uh, free throw percentages usually will show that. I think it's just a matter of right now being more of a mental issue. Um, as much as we, as much as fans are talking about this, uh, the coaches are talking about it that much more. The friends and family of the players are mentioning that I'm sure on more than one occasion. So uh, it's it's definitely a mental hump that uh, these players need uh, to get over. Whether it happens sooner or later, it's hard to say. But trust me when I state that this is something that they work and work on a lot at practice. A lot of the free throw shooting actually takes place at the end of practice when you're when you're gassed uh, just to really sharpen your physical and mental ability to work through that aspects and uh, make your free throws at a higher clip. Uh, just one reason or another, it's just not quite clicking for some of the players uh, at Arizona State, and you hope that that does not uh, cost them games. Uh, down the road because this is still a team at the end of the day that definitely has a small margin for error. Next question comes from uh, Chad Smith, and it's actually a topic that we talked about in the huddle, uh, talking about ASU's facility upgrades in specific, uh, the uh, Wells Fargo Arena uh, upgrade that's supposed to take place in conjunction with the uh, construction of the hockey arena, which is basically going to be the parking lot uh, east of, of Wells Fargo Arena. Uh, if, if there are any updates on that, uh, do, do they move the sports that are currently being played at Wells Fargo Arena to a different spot? So can this start from the ground up? And uh, also, does the lawsuit by the new uh, Arizona Attorney General, who uh, wants to uh, siphon away the stadium district uh, funds that Arizona State is scheduled to receive from all the real estate developments on its land, to pay for those two projects, and can that affect uh, everything? Um, I'll answer the last question first. Um, that's where this really more of a hypothetical if that lawsuit does really go through and does it really get decided um, uh, against against Arizona State. I'd like to think that, and not to get too political over here, but uh, a state that has uh, done quite a bit to cut educational funding to Arizona State, to all the public schools, uh, K through 12, and, and its universities would really uh, lay their paws off, if you will, off of uh, Arizona State being creative and trying to raise revenue without raising tuition, without asking for taxpayers' money, and doing this with the stadium district through real estate uh, development on their land. So um, I think that question whether the lawsuit is going to affect or not is too much of a hypothetical. I think in theory, sure it does, but I wouldn't uh, have an apprehension that it's a, a fait accompli that Arizona state is really 
not going to be able to raise money because of that lawsuit. I think we're far, far away from that, if if at all, reaching uh, that uh, fork in the road uh, in terms of that. But as far as um, renovating Wells Fargo Arena and the construction of the hockey arena, which, again, the school wants to do at the same time, just to cut down on costs because you're going to have the same construction company involved in both projects. Uh, yes, there, there are some hurdles uh, that uh, we did uh, – talk about in the huddle not impossible hurdles to overcome but maybe big enough to uh delay the construction that was tentatively and i should say very tentatively scheduled for 2020 maybe to push that out for a year or two more uh but as far as other sports uh not playing at wells fargo arena during the renovation in order to uh cut down on the uh amount of time that was dedicated to the renovation because i don't think they're going to do what they did to Sun Devil Stadium and just uh, implode, if you will, a whole uh, a whole section of the arena, let alone the, the entire arena, and just build it from the ground up. It's really just going to be gutting it out and rebuilding it. Uh, I don't think it's going to be really feasible to move all the sports, which are men's basketball, women's basketball, gymnastics, and wrestling, out of there, even for a period of a year let alone more than that. I just really don't think that Arizona State wants to go in that direction. I feel that uh, it could set all those programs back uh, playing at, at, at a different arena. It obviously is going to involve a huge uh, cost. It's going to involve a logistic uh, nightmare uh, to do that. And um, one way or another, uh, those uh, sports are going to have to just uh, endure being in the arena less than they're accustomed to uh, in the off season uh, to let those uh, renovations uh, begin in earnest and, and really uh, finish in a reasonable amount of time. So I think that's where all these facility upgrades is upgrades are headed. Uh, again, there was some talk about it being, started in 2020 i'm somewhat skeptical of that i think it might be closer to 2021 or 2022 but uh, arizona state uh, is moving forward in that just needs this thing to clear all the different huddles to get that going next question um comes uh from chris handle is uh vote at vote chris romero um i don't know if chris is uh r running for office here in 2020 but i guess uh, something to keep your eye on right why is it that Bobby Hurley struggles so much in a weak Pac-12 conference but plays so well against out-of-conference opponents despite uh, some of those uh, teams being much better? Uh, I feel that there's uh, really two, two um, answers over here for this. First one, um, in out-of-conference, it's uh, not unusual to catch a team still going through the motions, trying to figure out itself especially if they have a, a good amount of uh, younger and experienced players on the roster. And Arizona State uh, does uh, benefit from that at times. So not that Arizona State doesn't have those own issues itself, but uh, I think that by and large uh, they really have uh, the knack to uh, prepare well for those teams. And uh, I'm not going to say catch them napping, but just maybe just catch them as they're in the phase of trying to figure out themselves, trying to figure out their identity. And uh, Arizona State has done uh, very, very well um, in that department. I mean, you look at a team like Kansas, and uh, they didn't play horrible uh, in the first half. 
but Arizona State was able to slow them down uh, on defense. And uh, in the second half, I just feel that, again, going back to the chess moves that this uh, Arizona State coaching staff has to successfully execute, we just saw um, one example in that Kansas game in the second half where Arizona State just really hit all the right buttons in how they approached uh, the game from a defensive and an offensive standpoint. And that's uh, why they're willing, that's where they're able uh, to, to come on top. But um, I think another thing uh, to keep in mind, and I'm not one to whine about referees or anything like that, but if we're calling a spade a spade here, the Pac-12 referees are just not up to par with referees from other conferences that we've seen. And uh, that was really evident, I feel, even in the 2017-18 season, where Arizona State obviously went undefeated, in that portion of their schedule, we're number three in the country uh, when that non-conference uh, schedule was concluded. Because when more often than not, when they had they did not have Pac-12 referees, uh, the game was officiated in just a more fair manner. And it seems like when the Pac-12 referees get into the picture, and obviously in conference play, you can't avoid them. Uh, they tend uh, to, to muck up things uh, quite a bit. And obviously, I don't want to put everything at the feet of the referees because at the end of the day, there's a lot uh, for the team to answer, a lot for the coaches to answer in, tr in terms of some of the shortcomings. But I just think for some reason that uh, the refereeing in the Pac-12, not that it doesn't hurt all the teams in the conference, but for one reason or another, and, and, and especially at home games for, for some reason, it really, really affects um, Arizona State. So it really is for them a breath of fresh air when they don't have to deal with those with those Pac-12 refs. Uh, I'll never forget the, the uh, NCAA tournament game they had at Dayton when they faced Syracuse. I mean, yes, it was a game that Arizona State lost, but I just could not get over the fact of how fair that game was officiated. And if there were Pac-12 referees in that game, um, I think Arizona State would never even have a chance to even sniff a victory like like they did during that contest. So again, not to sound like a officiating whiner or anything like that, but I do think that because the games are officiated differently and out of conference, that uh, that is something that has benefited ASU. And conversely, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Pac-12 officiating uh, seems to, to hurt ASU just a little more than its, than its foes. And uh, that's something um, that is a factor. But um the last factor, to be honest, is uh, just, uh, again, when we talk about preparing for, for teams that Arizona State, for some reason, is not able to scout their opponents as well as the opponents are able to scout Arizona State. Now, I don't mean to make that as an umbrella statement. Uh, I mean, obviously, Arizona State is successful against some of those teams, but by and large, it just looks like when Pac-12 play starts that Arizona State might have a harder time figuring out what an opponent wants to do comparing to that opponent's knowledge level, what Arizona State is trying to do. And that is some one factor that cannot be uh, overlooked. And I think that uh, is something that, that has to improve. As we said earlier, Arizona State off to a pretty good Pac-12 start, uh, sitting at 4-2, and two, but... If uh, they are going to start faltering, start struggling again, splitting series uh, in the next uh, few weeks, then uh, that is definitely uh, one factor that you can point to 
as uh, something that uh, definitely hinders uh, the Sun Devils uh, once conference play begins. This question on Twitter comes from Trevor. Who in the pipeline for ASU basketball recruiting for the next season? Any four stars? So uh, just to reiterate what I said earlier, in terms of recruiting information, uh, I'm going to be somewhat judicious by information they're provided in the podcast versus information they provide in the huddle. But uh, some of the uh, notable 2020 prospects are already out there that um, have definitely shown interest um, in um, Arizona State. Uh, uh, Tari Eason, a uh, forward from uh, Federal Way, Washington. Uh, Zach Harvey, a four-star guard from uh, Napa, California. Uh, locally here, uh, Jason Harris, a forward from, um, from Gilbert. Uh, a player who some of you may know may be still debating between playing uh, football <clears throat> and basketball, but is being recruited by Arizona State and many, many other schools for both sport, for sports. And uh, another uh, local prospect, uh, Dalen uh, Terry, a, uh, a four-star guard. So those are some of the names, like I said, that have been out there for a little while that um, Arizona State is, lo- is looking at uh, really, really closely. But again, when it comes to specific names and viability, uh, that's information that I more uh, share with my um, customers uh, in the huddle uh, rather than the podcast. So uh, sign up and uh, find out for yourself uh, who Arizona State is uh, seriously looking at. And last question uh, for this podcast, uh, coming again from uh, at vote Chris Romero, I'd like to hear your thoughts about Michael Crow's comments uh, regarding Larry Scott and the conference, and also with all the staff turnover, regardless of head coach, should we accept that we are a stepping stone for position coaches? So Oscar, I'll ask, sorry, I will answer the second question first. In terms of the staff turnover, um, I think it's fair to say that Arizona State is not view as, viewed as an elite job. And if a Michigan, for example, comes calling for Sean Nua and just offering a salary that ASU isn't comfortable in matching, then, um, yeah, I think uh, that's one example where you can see Arizona State as a stepping stone. I think that you also have the issue where sometimes assistants, gets, uh, assistants would get promotions. And in John Simon's case, he left for Memphis because he can be a passing game uh, coordinator that can help him be uh, an, an offensive coordinator one day and that's a path that just was not available for him at, at Arizona State. So that's really not not much so much of a stepping stone. It is just a, a chance at a promotion. I think it's important that uh, you create a culture that does entice assistants to stay. And I think that Herm Edwards has done a good job in developing that culture. And I know that the departures as of late are questioning people about that statement, but again, I just feel like you have uh, you had like two unique circumstances, and this wasn't an issue where Herm Edwards was really scaring away assistants. That even being here one year under uh, his leadership just had enough and wanted to leave. That wasn't the case at all. So I think Arizona State still is going to have that stepping stone uh, moniker, if you will, but I just don't think it's going to be that prevalent in terms of uh, just seeing like a mass exodus of uh, coaches or just a high rate of turnover that we saw under Todd Graham. 
I really don't feel that that is something that's going to be commonplace uh, at Arizona State. As far as the question of Michael Crow defending Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott, uh, an individual that has come under a ton of scrutiny in recent months, I think there is some naivete, if you will, of Crow probably not being in the trenches, if you will, like Arizona State's athletic department as a whole, or Ray Anderson in specific, and not really seeing or knowing firsthand uh, all the ills that are right now part of the Pac-12 commissioner and his uh, legacy as the commissioner of, of the Pac-12 conference. And uh, there's probably just some tone deafness in that regard, too that he, for some reason, he being Crow, elects to believe some of the, I would describe, unrealistic expectations and forecasts for this conference that Larry Scott is spewing out there in terms of, namely, media rights and how much better the conference will be positioned in that avenue to make more money uh, for its conference members. I just feel that Crow is just taking Larry Scott's word over a lot of other people and not seeing that his body of work really produced uh, the, the expected results. So that that's really my, my take on it. Now, Conspiracy theorists, theorists would say that uh, my, Dr. Michael Crow knows exactly what's wrong with Larry Scott and what's exactly what's wrong with the conference. And obviously, he won't blast Larry Scott in public in an interview that's for everybody to see and read. And that um, if he has any issues with Larry Scott, he would, he would address them uh, in private. And maybe he, too, is very displeased with what he's seeing with the Pac-12 and just putting on a happy face, so to speak, to say that everything uh, with Larry Scott and the conference is just all peaches and cream. But um, I just feel that maybe the more plausible explanation to this is that being removed or not closely connected as other aspects of the university, and that's not unique to Dr. Michael Crow. I think it's very commonplace with every university president that uh, they're just uh, seeing uh, the Pac-12 from a, a 20,000 feet point of view, if that makes sense, and uh, not able to see really the nitty gritty and really just perhaps taking the word of Larry Scott over the word of people that have really been adversely affected by the conference and by his actions, and, and that and that is really unfortunate. But um, again, I don't know for a fact that despite a glowing interview that uh, Dr. Michael Crow really is going to support uh, Larry Scott come, come hell or high water. I mean, if it will come a point where Crow and the fellow uh, Pac-12 presidents are going to want to take action 
against Larry Scott, I, for one, uh, will not be surprised despite an interview that really suggested to the contrary. So uh, on that uh, maybe not so happy note, uh, we conclude uh, this uh, episode of Devil's Diary. Uh, we definitely uh, did go longer than usual, but uh, I figured that I probably owed you uh, a couple of podcasts since the last time we talked. So uh, hopefully uh, you, you enjoyed uh, this episode. Uh, our next episode is going to come uh, right before the beginning of spring practice. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, spring uh, practice uh, media day that's going to be uh, conducted on uh, January uh, 31st. Obviously, we're going to talk some more um, ASU basketball uh, with the uh, three uh, crucial games that are coming up, and uh, we'll see if the outlook and uh, the common sentiments about the program that exists today will still exist uh, uh, in a couple of weeks. So uh, thank you thank again uh, for tuning in, and uh, if you enjoyed uh Listen uh, to me talk. Uh, you'll enjoy more of what I have to offer to uh, my premium subscribers at devilsidus.com. Uh, please uh, join us over there uh, in the Devil's Huddle and uh, converse with your fellow Sun Devil fans and uh, get to hear what I have to say at uh, much more length and much more depth. So thank you again for tuning in the podcast. Until next time, have a good week. I was living in a devil town I didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town Devil Town Didn't know it was a devil
Devil Town